Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. The college admission season is in full swing and it brings its usual stresses. However, in the world of intergenerational planning, it's a unique opportunity for families to discuss their core values and the development of their kids' personal narratives. It's also the chance for families to collaborate on a life-changing decision around the kids' future, a process in which the engaged kids have a vested interest. Finally, it's often the first instance where kids experience the judgment of their personal narratives by the outside world, sometimes harshly. To help us dive deeper into this concept, I'm going to speak with Lindsay Tan. Lindsay's the founder and CEO of Logic Prep. As a leading college admissions advisor, Lindsay helps students around the world develop and tell their stories and identify their best fit schools. Over the past decade, she and her team have helped thousands of families successfully navigate the college application and higher education landscape. Welcome aboard, Lindsay. Hi, Frazier. It's great to be here. Well, I'm glad you're on. You are getting in at a good time because I, I know a lot of people who are listening are engaged in the college admissions process and other situations, whether it's high school or grad school, but it's something that's a consistent worry for many people. And the numbers are crazy at this point. It's the most competitive environment that I can think of. What does that mean to you? I mean, how, it's it's crazy out there. What does that look like numerically? And how are you thinking about that for your clients? Yes, it's pretty crazy out there. But I want to assure you all, maybe it's not as crazy as it quite seems. I think we are having this conversation at a particular moment of upheaval for the whole college admissions landscape. And that was definitely demonstrated in last cycle's admissions outcomes. But essentially what happened last year, and this was during kind of the height of the pandemic, there were really more applications for the same number of spots, especially at the most selective schools. So what does this mean? Of course, this means lower acceptance rates are a reality. So for example, imagine you were applying to Columbia two years ago. You were one of 40,000 applicants, which is pretty nuts to begin with. Last admission cycle, you were up against 60,000 other students. Simply put it, the most highly selective schools the pond expanded. And it's not just that you're a smaller fish in that pond, it's that the pond really got bigger because applications, they were up. And why were they up? Part of it is really attributable to this test optional movement that we saw during the pandemic. During COVID, students were not able on a consistent basis to take standardized tests. The SAT and the ACT were perpetually delaying or canceling and rescheduling. And so in response, schools made necessary and what are in most cases temporary accommodations to say, we will not require standardized test scores. So that meant that more students felt sort of empowered to take that risk, to take that reach at more selective schools. And for admissions officers, there was less data available to make decisions without standardized testing consistently. And honestly, in this last admission cycle, without as reliable transcripts, um, given that most students were doing classes at home. So if you're an admissions officer and you're putting a class together and you have less data, less firm data, let's say, than you had before, I mean, that must have been a challenge. Is that what you're hearing from the field? 
Yes. I mean, admissions officers are perpetually inundated with a ton of reading to do, even under kind of the best, most manageable of circumstances. But as we mentioned last year, there were more applications, fewer test scores. So it just meant that they were overwhelmed and certainly overwhelmed with more paper, but also the need to really focus on those subjective size or components of the application It was even more important because in a world where standardized testing is de-emphasized and perhaps transcripts are even less reliable, and that's really a pandemic issue, well, what matters more? It's all of the extracurriculars, the teacher letters of recommendations. It's the non-quantitative stuff. So yes, for admissions officers, what a job. So the admissions officers sort of hamstrung a little bit in terms of the data that they've had. The students who are trying to figure out, you know, how to put their best foot forward, that's changed a little bit, it sounds like. I know that you've got your grades, that doesn't go away. Standardized tests, to me, the SAT was always this big thing. And it was, for lack of a better word, either half or a third of the decision-making process. That's been decreased in some ways. And then you have the extracurriculars and how you sort of build your life around that. How do you, as an advisor to families and students who are jumping into this process, how do you get them to think about these different factors and to put their best foot forward, not just in the application, but maybe in the way that they're sort of gearing up their lives so that they, you know, whether they're the first violinist or the, you know, taking Mandarin, or do you go for class president or something like that? Absolutely. So I think one thing that our advisors really underscore to all of the families they work with is that even though things are in flux when it comes to college admissions, The process has not fundamentally changed. It's always been founded upon essentially three main pillars, which are the academic record, so the transcript, grades in school, standardized test scores, the SAT or the ACT, which continue to be a relevant factor even in a test-optional environment. They're just optional. And then the personal narratives. That's the activities, how you spend your summers, what your teachers say about you, and what really makes you who you are. And so what we underscore to our families is that these pillars still stand. It's just that the weight or the emphasis of each of these pillars has maybe been challenged in a way that it hasn't been before. So when we're talking to families, we're from an earlier age, really emphasizing that third pillar more than maybe we have historically. Because in a more crowded landscape, in a less data-driven quantitative landscape, it's really about what can you do that's going to differentiate you in a really authentic and compelling way. And that's not something that you just pull out of a hat a couple of months before you apply. It's a story that you cultivate through genuine exploration throughout the trajectory of the high school experience. So that when the time comes to apply, you're better positioned to talk about your interests and goals. So take us through what your firm does and maybe a little bit about how you came about founding it and how you intersect with the family and the applicant in putting their best foot forward and, and taking care of that third pillar. Sure, absolutely. So essentially, we're a team of storytellers. My background is in writing and literature, and we're really invested in helping students find and then tell their story in a way that's going to be compelling to colleges for the application process and to help them to have the options that they aim for. And at the same time, to find the best fit schools for them. So we have a team of college advisors and essay coaches. Our college advisors are all former admissions officers. So they all have been on the other side of the desk at various top schools like Harvard and Duke and Georgetown. And they're really leveraging that expertise 
to help students be thoughtful and intentional from the very beginning of their high school experience about what classes to take, what to engage in outside of school, how to spend their summers in a way that's going to position them well to convey a cohesive and compelling narrative to colleges and also find the best fit schools for them. There are so many amazing universities out there. It's really about thinking through what is a good match? What's going to be an environment where students are going to thrive? So really leading the charge and kind of the research and, and the strategy around that side of the process. At the same time, our essay coaches are all professional writers. So they partner with students and with advisors to actually bring that story to life in a much more tangible way. So when we talk about storytelling, that's as it's conveyed through the essay. So when we talk about these three pillars and for people like me, for whom the SAT was this big boogeyman out there that had to be slayed and it's becoming de-emphasized and I hear about all different schools that are saying, we're not even going to look at any of these scores. It's still important though, right? I mean, I, I think if you have a strength in being able to take standardized tests, that's not something you'd want to keep under the covers. That's very true. And I, I want to take a second to kind of step back and talk about what is test optional? What does it actually mean? Because I think you're absolutely right that there's some nuance to this. So test optional essentially means that the SAT is not required at a school, but it will be considered if it's submitted. So therefore, Fraser, you're exactly right. If you're a strong test taker, that can absolutely be an additive part of the application process and is for many of our students. Test optional, I want to point out also, is distinct and different from what's called test blind. At a test blind school, the SAT is not evaluated at all, or the ACT. Whether you take it or not, it truly doesn't matter because they're not looking at it, even if you submit it. And very, very few schools fit into this category. The most kind of well-known test blind schools are actually the UC schools, the University of California system just converted to this philosophy in the last year or so. But for the vast majority of schools that are sort of grappling with what comes next for standardized testing, they fall into that test optional camp. And many of those schools who are, in fact, test optional have positioned it as a temporary accommodation in response to the pandemic and haven't made a long term statement on what the policy is going to be on a moving forward basis. So that's sort of the SAT world or ACT. I, I never took that. So I sort of blocked that out of my mind completely. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. you get into the world of the AP tests, which was always sort of positioned to me back when that you wanted to take those because that showed that you were challenging yourself. And it came with a certain rigor that in my case, it helped basically knock off a semester of college for me because I took enough of them to place out of certain things. How is that regarded? Is that still similar? Or is that something that has that been de-emphasized to for some reason? No, I would argue actually in this environment that APs are perhaps even more important. And I think you hit the nail on the head with your choice of word rigor. Rigor is like a big buzzword, especially when it comes to evaluating the transcript. So APs, in a high school context, just enrolling in the most challenging courses available, which may include APs, can be really additive because they demonstrate to colleges that you are pushing yourself in your areas of strength and taking the most challenging course load available. And then the AP exams, which are different from the AP courses themselves, are a further marker of achievement, which I, I think can really even bolster in this environment strong AP coursework performance, just given, frankly, the nature of kind of grade inflation at so many schools. Getting an A in an AP course 
wonderful, not an accomplishment to be diminished, but also not a standardized marker. And also a lot of students are getting A's in AP courses. So being able to couple that with a four or a five, and APs are graded on a five point scale, the actual standardized AP exam, that's meaningful. Cool. So let's talk about maybe sort of the more strategic advice that you're providing the students. Cost of education, relevance of education in the job market, relevance of education in a longer term sort of life strategy in many ways. We hear stories all the time about the pressure to get into the best and the most exclusive and the numbers just make that a Herculean task for most people, no matter how talented they are. Where do you step in on that front and help people think about not only sort of where a college education fits in their life plan, but where it fits in from a value perspective and maybe sort of a subtle undertone, which may be a little darker is how much is the ability to pay factored into a college admissions person's calculus as to whether a student makes it or not? Sure. Definitely a lot, a lot to unpack in that. So I'll start with kind of this notion of the value around an education and what is the most, you know, valuable use and where are are dollars best spent. When we're working with families, we're really kind of assessing this or thinking about value through the lens of fit, especially given that we're working with 17 year olds, oftentimes students who are younger, most of them don't know whether graduate school is going to be part of the plan or whether they're going to be right into the job market or what kind of, you know, recruiting avenues they're going to be taking. We can kind of start those conversations, but I think for the most part, they feel quite abstract. So our advisors are mostly operating from a perspective of where is a student going to feel most happy, most engaged? Where are they most going to thrive so that they're going to develop the kinds of relationships and, you know, achieve the grades that are going to increase kind of optionality moving forward? You know, we think about what environments are going to be most conducive to that. I guess more concretely, when we think about value and where a dollar is going to be spent in education and all of that, we do try to push students to think about whether grad school is part of the plan because matriculation rates to grad school from particular colleges is obviously you know, something that we can look at and, and evaluate or what kinds of industries might they want to enter because there are certain universities where firms recruit and others that firms may not even touch at all depending on the industry. So those are those are conversations we tap into, but really through the lens of what is going to be a good match where the student's going to thrive. So when I'm dealing with clients, it's sort of the intergenerational component and families are interested in transferring the values of the family in addition to the value. Education is a big part of the process in order for a more seamless transition to happen from one generation to the next. How does the process work in terms of your dealing with the student individually and where does the family step in? How involved do the parents get? I'm sure they get very involved. These are big decisions. These are big dollars. This is the future of their kid. And that's with all sorts of emotional baggage. How do you interact with the whole family unit? And in a sense, are there times you have to draw up certain lines so that you can get your job done? Absolutely. I mean, we think about our relationships as partnerships with the entire family and parents are engaged in many conversations, particularly at sort of the real inflection points around defining the list of schools or the strategy around applications. At the same time, it's really an opportunity to empower students. It's one of the first kind of transition to adulthood that they're going to experience. So the majority of our advisors' conversations are actually one-on-one with their students, kind of engaging them as the adults that they're becoming 
and putting them in a position to make thoughtful, intentional decisions, not outside the realm of kind of family conversation, but with an understanding that the students' engagement and their commitment to the process is going to yield the best outcome for everyone. So as students are, you know, thinking about going to college and in the back of their mind is in many cases, it's, you know, what does the job market look like afterward? I've run into it a lot where people say, you know, do I want a liberal arts degree to quote unquote, learn how to think? Should I go into the STEM sort of majors so that I have a bankable skill or maybe programming, or should I, you know, go through a traditional business degree? For those people who are really sort of looking at college as the driver to getting into a job market in a meaningful way, how do you think about that? I mean, is that something where maybe an undergraduate business degree is the path that many that many think makes the most sense, but isn't? <laughs> I think an undergraduate business degree is one path to that outcome. I think what's powerful about an undergraduate business school, particularly one of the most selective ones, is that recruiters are going to be on those campuses. They're going to find those students interesting, and they're going to know that they have skills that they can contribute on an immediate basis. That said, many of the same firms recruit at top universities say Harvard, for example, or Princeton, that don't even offer undergraduate business majors at all. So in that case, they really are looking for students who have developed problem-solving skills and kind of a depth of kind of thinking and the curiosity about learning. And that's kind of what they're seeking. So I think it's very much a combination of like, where does the student want to land? What industry do they want to be in? What tier of schools might be accessible to them? So I talked a little bit about the instilling of values. And as you said, that the application process is sort of the first toe in the water of of a student going into an adult world. How are you seeing families use that application process to really codify in many ways the values that they want to transfer going forward? Yeah, I mean, that's actually one of my favorite parts of, of what we do and where I think our work intersects with a lot of the conversations, Fraser, that you're having with families. So much of the college application process, as I mentioned, is rooted around, you know, who are you becoming? What story are you telling? And colleges really value students' impact in the world and their initiatives to do better and make things better and make a positive social impact. And what we've seen is students kind of in partnership with their advisors developing really amazing, really impressive social entrepreneurship projects that utilize the resources of their families, businesses, or organizations, or foundations to make their mark. So for example, I had a, a student a number of years ago who was interested in environmental issues, who worked with their family's car company to make positive impacts around emissions. And it was just like a very, it was a very cool intersection of, you know, family values, family business, and student both positioning themselves effectively for this process and kind of growing into the person that they're becoming. So it's a great way to get a kid invested in that process because it affects them tangibly and immediately. And I hadn't really thought about it until we sort of started discussing that it really is kind of an interesting way to get a backdoor look at how to think about those values that really push things forward. So here's something that I did not have when I applied to college, and this was this whole social media capability and I think the emphasis on personal branding, which is 
10 to 20x more sophisticated than back when I applied to college back in the the dark ages of the early 90s. How do you think about personal branding and social media within the college application process? And against that backdrop, I sort of am seeing a lot of young people really, in the job market anyway, concerned about the digital resume, their YouTube channel, their Instagram, et cetera, that it demonstrates their work and their proficiency in order to get jobs. Is that starting to creep into the college admissions process as well? Yes. I mean, I think to some degree it is. When we talk about branding, I think we look at it through the lens of really narrative building because we're working with a younger audience about encouraging students to really follow their curiosity and then connect the dots in a way that feels cohesive and kind of builds a brand that will likely evolve over the longer term as students evolve and they grow into the people kind of that they're growing into. That said, I mean, in certain cases, it can be additive and helpful for students to take a more intentional approach to building their online story or brand, particularly around, you know, personal projects that they've created as kind of this like extra dimension of the application process. If they're working on, you know, creating a business or a nonprofit, we've worked with our students to actually develop websites that both support their project and speak to kind of their own online image. So that can be, uh, that can definitely be a tool in this process. The flip side of this, of course, is that all teenagers are on social media and that is an area that's rife with potential pitfalls. So we encourage our students to be equally thoughtful about what they're putting online. And I think that it's in most cases, admissions officers are not tracking down their applicants' Instagrams. As I, I mentioned earlier, there's plenty of submitted material to wade through. That That's not the kind of deep dive that they're doing in the majority of cases. But I think if there's a reason where it looks like they need to do some further investigation, admissions readers can and they will. So students should just be wary and be thoughtful about that. I was going to say, it, it probably argues for having a, a bit of a social media audit to make sure that you know what's out there, not unlike any yes. job search or anything like that. <laughs> it, to, it, exactly. You don't want to be, you know, the picture of someone holding a Jack Daniels bottle, you know, smoking a cigarette over a bridge not probably a doesn't help you get into Harvard. <laughs> nope, I, I wouldn't count on that. So as people are sort of knee deep in the application process, as we start to sort of finish up here, the stress involved with the whole process can be all-consuming. How do you think about this in terms of bite-sized approaches and a good strategy for people to have as they enter into this? Yeah, I think start early. Time is definitely your ally in this process. And especially with those three pillars, you want to leave time to plan and to approach each of them when that moment is due. I also think that when it comes to building the narrative, more time leads to more thoughtful exploration and also more genuine development of interest. So I think that beginning as early as freshman year to start thinking about what kinds of things engage me, excite me, where should my time be going is totally appropriate and advisable. And I also feel like, you know, one of the best things that our advisors do is they take the stress out of the family. I think that that's one of the best reasons to engage with a professional for this process. It honestly allows parents to be advocates for their children and their relationship and to enjoy their children in these last couple of years before they head out of the house. So it's not about them being taskmasters while their kids are at home saying, did you complete your applications? Have you written your essays? That's our job. 
instead, we really encourage parents to, you know, go on college tours with them and have the bigger talks about what do you want to study? What do you want to do for work? And enjoy the process and enjoy their kids. Really cool. Lindsay, how do we stay in touch with you? How do listeners find your firm? Great. So my firm is called Logic Prep. If you check us out at logicprep.com or shoot me an email at lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y at logicprep.com, I'd be happy to chat with you about your kids and see what we can do to help put together a plan. Great. Lindsay, thank you very much. We'll watch as this process unfolds for everyone. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.